Today we are, we are finishing up our Picture of God series, uh, which if uh, you've been here for a couple months, you know that we've been going through looking at pictures of God that we see in Jesus. Uh, Jesus told Philip and he told his disciples that, and he told Thomas that if you've seen me, you've seen the Father. So if you want to know what God looks like, we need to know what Jesus looks like. And we've been looking to scriptures to see different events and teachings from Jesus. And if you remember uh, from the very beginning, we started the series by looking at how God has from the very beginning of our earthly human ancestry desired for heaven and earth to be united. He was with Adam and Eve, and his presence was there, and heaven and earth were united. He, he wanted to be with Abraham. He wanted to be with Israel and tabernacle with them, and his presence was in the temple, and, and heaven and earth were united, but continually they would give up their vocation of being a nation of priests, and they would worship idols, and they would take God off of the throne, and eventually they find themselves in exile until Jesus came, and John says in John 1 that he tabernacled among us. That his presence came and, and he was uniting heaven and earth in human form on the earth for all to experience if they wanted to. And, and in this series, we've looked at some awesome pictures of God as seen in Jesus. And I want to recount some of those for you to help set the stage for where we're going today. Uh, if you remember, we started first by looking at how Jesus was baptized. How he stood on the muddy banks uh, of our lives and entered into humanity, into the depths of humanity, and was with us. He's Emmanuel, God with us. We saw him tempted like we are, like Israel was in the desert, remember, and how he withstands that temptation and he overcomes it because of his sinlessness. We saw him, uh, if you remember this story in, in John 4, giving life-giving water to the adulterous woman at the well, whereas religious legalism would have given her bitter water, but he gives her life. In the kingdom parables, remember we talked about these, that we see this picture of God working through things like, he says, through yeast and mustard seeds, to these small things. He works through these small things to do this catalytic but slow transformation over time, that God is actually slow in some of the ways he does things. We saw in, uh, in the raising of Lazarus that Jesus meets people where they're at, that God meets Martha, where she's at, and, and he gives her deep transformational truths. He meets Mary where she's at in, in her tears, and he cries with her. He meets us where we're at. At the Last Supper, we see Jesus taking on the role of a servant to wash the feet of his disciples, eventually following that servanthood all the way to the crucifixion, where he's a servant for all of us. Well, we looked at Peter recently to see after Peter's three denials that, that Jesus comes to him in grace, having given him a new name and gives him a new purpose and restores him to right standing, but to be on mission with God. This is our God. This is our father, a good, good father. And Jesus is the exact representation of him, scripture says. But now Jesus has left the earth, right? He's not here. We can't look around and see him. The accounts of his life speak to this over and over again. He's risen and he's the savior of the world, but he has left the world to be with the father in glory. So where do we go to see him? Where does the world go to see Jesus? I would argue like we've been doing, we look to scripture, right? I mean, we have the scriptures for a reason to look at these stories of God and the narrative that, that God's been writing for thousands of years. We can look to God there. And that's why we've been doing this for the past couple of months. But I think, though, that we can look someplace else. 
And I want to look today at some, some stories from the end of Jesus' life to where he tells us we can look. And I think we get a pretty good picture of God as well in the process. So, like I said, my wife, Jess, uh, is currently away. She's visiting a friend uh, out in California for her 40th birthday. And before Jess left, she wrote a little note to the kids, and she gave them some instructions. And maybe you've done this before when you left. She gave them instructions uh, like, you know, be kind to one another, love one another, don't stress dad out too much instructions, like help dad with the dishes, right? These kind of basic instructions. And maybe you've done this before. When you've left your house or as, a, as an employer or an employee, you leave some instructions about what's supposed to happen in your absence. Well, what we see in the account of Jesus' life and in the book of Acts, we see that Jesus, before he leaves his disciples, gives them some things that they're called to. He tells them a little bit of what they're to expect in his absence until he returns as our coming king. I think it's important for us to look into these teachings, into these events, to get a picture of God, because Jesus is not visible now to most people, outside of dreams and visions. He's not visible now in the same way that he was in the New Testament. So how do we get a picture of God now? How does the world see Jesus? Well, I think it comes down to the church being the church. Uh, we have this picture, Bethany's going to put a picture up on the screen, of, of uh, something that happened when we were renovating this room. Um, it's still a, a pretty mediocre room, but when we were renovating, uh, this wall had this hideous green um, curtain over it, and we took this curtain down, it had like 30 years of dust on it, uh, and this wall back here was this cream colored, and I, you, I know you can't see this picture great, okay, so don't break out your glasses, you're still not going to be able to see it. Uh, but on this wall... We wrote, our core team and some friends from Bethlehem came and wrote some promises of God, some scriptures over this wall, sort of proclaiming this space, claiming this space as God's. Um, I don't know that the YMCA yoga folks know that, but that's what we did. We claim this place for Jesus. And and at the very top there, if you could see it, um, I wrote kind of an overarching promise there from God and sort of a a command, sort of a a prophecy, I think, for our church. It says in John 20, Jesus tells his disciples just before he's leaving, as the Father has sent me, I'm sending you. He tells the disciples, as the Father has sent me, I am sending you. You And I sort of claim that for me and my life, and I claim that for our church, that as the Father has sent Jesus, he has actually sent us as well. All right, you can be done with that picture. Think about this, though, for a second. Imagine that you are the disciples. Imagine Jesus has just been, been crucified. He's been resurrected three days later. He's performed miracle after miracle, walked on water, fed 5,000, raised people from the dead. He's proved religious leaders wrong. He's proved political leaders wrong. He's overcome sin. He's overcome death. And now he says he's going to send them out to do what he did. That they're being sent out like he has been sent out. Can I just say this? That was not what they were expecting. Like, this is not at all what they were looking forward to to now be sent out. They were thinking Jesus was going to build this kingdom, and they were just going to get to live in it. He's saying, I'm sending you out like I was sent out. But what a picture of our God. And frankly, I would argue it's right in line with what God has done from the very beginning. Partnering with humanity to be worshipers of himself. 
partnering with humanity to bear witness, to reflect God's glory out to the world, to reflect his rule and reign to the world. It's what Jesus did, and now he's calling his disciples to it, and he calls his church to it, of which we are part of. He's calling them to be heaven and earth people, where heaven and earth unite in them, and they reflect it out to the world around them, reflecting the rule and reign to the world around them. He's calling his disciples, and he calls his church to now be a picture of God. It has been Jesus, and now it is Jesus in the church being called to be a picture of God themselves. But how could they be sent out like Jesus was sent out? How in the world could they do this? How could they possibly go and do the things that Jesus has done? They were just fishermen, Galileans, uneducated, tax collectors, stay-at-home moms, stay-at-home dads, salesmen, on the road, traveling, normal people, working normal jobs, unqualified to do ministry. How in the world could they go out and be sent like Jesus had been sent? Well, we need to look at some of Jesus' most kind of impassioned words that he gives his disciples uh, starting in John 14. So if you have a copy of the scriptures, uh, we're going to look to John 14 here. If you don't have it, you can look it up on your phone. You can grab a Bible in the back. Those are for you. Um, <clears throat> but this is a, a, a catalytic couple passages here, a couple things of scripture here in John 14 to 17. John has recorded here that Jesus has told his disciples that he's going away. He's leaving and he's going to the Father. John 14, 5, Thomas said to him, Lord, we don't know where you are going, so how can we know the way? Jesus answered, I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. If you really know me, you would know my Father, or you do know my Father as well. Uh, From now on, you do know him and have seen him. Philip said, Lord, show us the Father, and that will be enough for us. Jesus answered, don't you know me, Philip, even after I've been among you such a long time? Anyone who has seen me has seen the Father. How can you say, show us the Father? Don't you believe that I am in the Father and that the Father is in me? The words I say to you are not just my own. Rather, it is the Father living in me who is doing his work. Believe in me when I say that I am in the Father and the Father is in me. Or at least believe on the evidence of the works themselves, the miracles themselves. I tell you the truth. Anyone who has faith in me will do what I have been doing. Listen to this. He will do even greater things than these. What? Like, come on. That's crazy. He will do even greater things than these because I am going to the Father. And I will do whatever you ask in my name so that the Son may bring glory to the Father. You may ask me for anything in my name, and I will do it. If you love me, you will obey what I command. And I will ask the Father, and he will give you another counselor to be with you forever, the Spirit of truth. The world cannot accept him. Listen to this. The world cannot accept him because it neither sees him nor knows him. But you know him, for he lives with you and will be in you. I will not leave you as orphans. I will come to you. Before long, the world will not see me anymore, but you will see me. Because I live, you also will live. On the day you will realize, on that day you will realize that I am in my Father, and you are in me, and I am in you. I don't have time to go through this. This could have been a really, really long sermon, okay, or an entire sermon series. I don't have time to go through John fourteen to seventeen, but it is an incredible couple of chapters 
of Jesus just pouring out his heart to the Father for his disciples, for himself, for the church, and for the church to come, which is us. And over and over again, he says these similar things. I am in the Father. The Father is in me. You're in me. I'm in you. Can I just ask you to meditate on that this week? Read through John 14 to 17 over and over again this week. I got so stuck on this. I planned on something different for this week, and I got so stuck on John 14 to 17, like I couldn't move without thinking about it. Can I just encourage you to listen to it this week? Listen to it in your car. Read it. Just let this soak in you. I'm in the Father. The Father is in me. You're in me. I'm in you. It's this thing. It goes round and round. He says, I do what my Father does. What, what, what I have is my Father's, and what my Father has is mine. I do what my Father commanded me to do, and my Father will do what I ask him to do. Do you see? It's this back and forth relationship of I'm in him, and he's in me, and I'm in over and over again. And multiple references to Jesus saying that the Father is going to send his spirit to them forever to guide them into truth, to remind them of all the things he had taught them, to testify about who Jesus is, and to make the will of God known to them, literally to tabernacle no longer just among them, but in them as little tabernacles. Paul in 1 Corinthians 2 and 3 interprets this concept and makes it clear that we are God's temple. And his spirit lives in us, opening our eyes to see truth, giving us the mind of Christ, Paul says. Giving us the mind of Christ to to help us understand the deep truths of God, the wisdom of God, the salvation of God. We put, as, as a church, as the church, we put so much stress on getting other people to believe. We can't do that. That's the work of the spirit. The spirit opens people's eyes to see truth. We can simply proclaim it. We are the temple of God. I mean, like, do you understand this? God is a good, good father. He is full of love and compassion and grace and mercy and goodness and joy and light and life. Jesus is in the father and came to earth to live as a picture of God, uniting heaven and earth and revealing true worship of that God, of the father. But now that he's leaving... He says, I'm going to send the Spirit of God to live in you disciples so they can do what he did, to live like he lived, to believe like he believed, to love like he loved. And not even just what he did. He says, to do more than I did. That's fascinating to me. He's leaving the earth to go be with the Father. But before he leaves, he gives the disciples this hope. That the Spirit of God, His very Spirit, His his mind, His heart, His love, His light, His truth, will come to them and live in them. This is unbelievable, hopeful truth for us, church. So rather than a temple they need to go to to find God's presence, rather than a geographical location that they need to make a pilgrimage to, they are now the temple of God. God's dwelling is inside of them. What a picture of our God this is, partnering with humanity in this way. And it's what he's been after all along in the entire narrative of Scripture. A people who are a priesthood with God dwelling inside of them. A light, a city on a hill. A people that love God and love others. But if you know yourself and you know humanity, you know that we cannot do that on our own. 
our minds and our hearts are selfish and corrupt and we just want to serve what we want to serve and we will put ourselves on the throne. We can't do it. But when the Spirit of God lives in us, we are in the Spirit. And the Spirit is in Jesus. And Jesus is in the Father. And we are all in it together when we believe that Jesus is Lord. And our eyes are opened to worship him as true king of everything. All of that is a return to the Garden of Eden, my friends. All of that is going back to the beginning with us seeing God for who he is, knowing who we are in him and having our identity in him, putting God on the throne where he belongs and nothing else. Simply worshiping him. But more than just opening our eyes, more than just opening our eyes to worship God, the spirit living in us empowers us to bear witness to God. To bear witness to the rule and reign of God in the world around us. So as Jesus is leaving the earth and he tells the disciples that he's sending them out, he's sending them, I'm sending you out to worship and to bear witness to me. He's sending them out like he had been sent out to worship God and to testify about him. But he told them, look, you're not going to be able to do this on your own. You're going to have to wait. You have to wait for the spirit to come upon you in power to move you to be able to do this, to fill you in such a way that you know it's not from you. But that when the spirit came upon them with power, they would be empowered to worship and to be witnesses of his rule and reign in the world around them, sent like he was sent. If you have a copy of scriptures, again, you can turn to Acts 2. This is this fascinating event in the life of the disciples and in the life of the church. The, the disciples have now been waiting for 50, well, 47 days since the resurrection. They've been waiting for the spirit like Jesus told them to wait. They find themselves in Jerusalem celebrating Pentecost, which was a holiday that the Jews would celebrate it says this in chapter 2 of Acts, when the day of Pentecost came, they were all together in one place. This means all the disciples were together in one place. Suddenly a sound like the blowing of a violent wind came from heaven and filled the whole house where they were sitting. They saw what seemed to be tongues of fire that separated and came to rest on each of them. All of them were filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak in other tongues and other languages as the Spirit enabled them. Now they were staying in Jerusalem, God-fearing Jews from every nation under heaven. When they, had heard, uh, when they heard this sound, this rushing wind, a crowd came together in bewilderment because each one heard them speaking in his own language. Utterly amazed, they asked, are not all these men who are speaking just dumb, uneducated Galileans? Like, how is this happening? Then how is it that each of us hears them in his own native language? Parthians, Medes, and Elamites, residents of Mesopotamia, Judea, and Cappadocia, Pontus, and Asia... Phrygia and Pamphylia, Egypt, and the parts of Libya near Cyrene, visitors from Rome. Can you tell that Luke is really into details, like he's listing all these places? Uh, visitors from Rome, both Jews and converts to Judaism, Cretans and Arabs. We hear them declaring the wonders of God in our own tongues. Amazed and perplexed, they ask one another, what does this mean? Why is this happening? Some, however, made fun of them and said, no, they've had too much wine. Then Peter stood up with the eleven raised his voice and addressed the crowd. Fellow Jews and all of you who live in Jerusalem, let me explain this to you. Listen carefully to what I say. These men are not drunk, as you suppose. It's only nine in the morning. Like, I don't know what that's supposed to mean, but it's only nine in the morning. They couldn't possibly be drunk. So, no. He says, this is what was spoken by the prophet Joel. In the last days, God says, I will pour out my spirit on all people. 
Your sons and daughters will prophesy. Your young men will see visions. Your old men will dream dreams. Even on my servants, both men and women, I will pour out my spirit in those days, and they will prophesy. They will boldly declare the truth. Men and women, young and old, uh, free and slave, like everyone will be filled with the spirit to be able to proclaim the goodness of God. So this holiday of Pentecost is, is 50 days after the Passover. So Jesus is killed on the Passover and raised to life three days later. The Jews would all gather back in Jerusalem, and they would celebrate it like kind of the in-gathering of, uh, I think it's the wheat harvest, and, and they're there, and, and they're celebrating. But they would read these prophecies from the Old Testament, particularly uh, from Ezekiel. Like, read Ezekiel 1 this week, and then reflect on Acts 2, okay? In Ezekiel 1, we see that the Spirit of God is, is hovering over the world, and it's this rushing sound of wind. And there's this fire that dances among the Spirit of God. And so these, these Jews would read this passage in the temple during Pentecost, and they would ask God to send his Spirit back. A rushing wind, a fire that would come in his presence, would dwell in the temple again, because he had left years earlier. They believed that when God would fill the temple with his presence, the nations would come and they would worship him there. But instead, what we see happen in Acts 2 is that the Spirit shows up all right, but not in the way they thought. Instead of showing up in the temple, he shows up in the people of God. This rushing wind, these flames that come and dance among the disciples, and they're speaking in different languages. And they, in turn, draw the nations to them. Do you see it? And then they go. Jesus says, you will go and you will carry this out to the nations to be a light to the Gentiles. Peter, who had been so cowardly just weeks before, gives the first of a few public addresses that he gives uh, in the book of Acts, in which he boldly proclaims the rule and reign of the resurrected Jesus. It's because the power of the Spirit in him is enabling him to do this, to speak with such clarity. He's an uneducated fisherman, and he starts rattling off Old Testament history, Old Testament prophecies, things that were looking forward to the Messiah. It's because the Spirit is in him, enabling him to be this bold. He's been empowered by the Spirit of God to worship Jesus, but also to bear witness to Jesus now. And as the book of Acts goes on, we see over and over and over again people empowered by the Spirit to heal people, empowered to love people, empowered to share their things among the church to care for the poor, empowered to cross racial barriers, Philip to the Ethiopian so he can proclaim the rule and reign of God, empowered to cross cultural barriers, empowered to cross gender barriers so that Paul can share with Lydia about the rule and reign of Jesus all by the power of the Spirit living in the disciples, living in the church. Friends, the Spirit used to come and go in the Old Testament. He would come on people, and they would be empowered to do something, and he would leave. And here it is that the Spirit is coming to dwell in the disciples permanently. They had never expected this to happen. These men and women were empowered by the Holy Spirit to worship God and to live out the reign and rule of God in their world, in their time, in their spheres of influence, and to be a picture of God for the world to see. Jesus was in the Father. The Spirit was in Jesus. And the Spirit is in the people. And they're all one temple and filling the earth with the glory of God. A people uniting heaven and earth, living out the rule and reign of God 
on earth, bearing witness to the kingship of God in their spheres of influence, in their normal jobs, in their everyday lives, as moms, as dads, as friends, as siblings, as workers, bearing, bringing the, the rule and reign of God to bear in the world. It's all happening because this is God's love for the world, for his children, and the way he has always partnered with humanity. And I can, can I just say that he's different than every other religion. Every other God says, get it right, and then maybe you can be with me. Self-deprecate, get rid of yourself, and then maybe you can become like a God. Our Father says, I love you. I'm going to come and dwell in you, and I'm going to transform you and make you more and more like my son, Jesus. This is the goodness of our Father. But so what? Right? Like, so what, what does this mean for you now? What does this mean for me living in the Lehigh Valley in 2019 or wherever you're living? Like, what does this mean for us when we go to our jobs tomorrow? What does this mean for us when we're dealing with irritating, you know, I'm not looking at anybody when I say this, irritating siblings, family members, uh, dealing with our, our kids who are coming to ask us questions for the umpteenth time today. Like, what, is this, what does this have to do with when we're living with bosses that we can't stand or hectic travel or sports schedule? Like, what does this mean today? Well, here's what I would say. Religion would say, now that you've found God, now that you've found God and you're living in this life, you better behave. You better behave. You better obey all of the rules. You better keep all the moral standards so that God can stay pleased with you. You better stay pure. And then someday we get to escape and leave all this sin and these sinful people behind. We can just go to heaven someday. That'll be great. Or, or, or the religious people will, will isolate and try to keep themselves pure and keep the world out. We don't want the world to come in and influence us. So we've got to keep them at a distance. Hopefully we can get back here next Sunday unscathed and we can talk to each other about the goodness of Jesus. Right? Like this is the religious legalistic mind. And the world says, rule and reign of God on earth. Like, what? I rule. I reign in my world. I'm in charge. Nobody else. I want to get the biggest bank account, the nicest car, the biggest house, the corner office, the best accolades on the sports field, whatever it is. Highest grades, be the best looking guy, best looking girl, climb the ladder. I will sit on the throne. I will have rule and reign over my life. And I'm going to isolate and keep people out so that I can stay strong. And there's no threats to my rule and reign. Friends, the gospel, the gospel says that Jesus is in the Father. And the Father is in Jesus. Jesus is in the Spirit, and the Spirit is in you, and the Spirit is in me when we call him Lord. And we have been empowered with the mind of Christ to know the Father, to worship him as king, to be enlightened to see that there is more to life than this. That there is a good God that loves us, who, who is truly king, triumphant over sin and death, and we no longer need to be afraid. We no longer need to worry about climbing the ladder. We no, need to, no longer need to worry about tyrants of the world because what is the worst that can happen to us? What power do tyrants have? Ultimately, fear and death. It has been overcome by Jesus. We no longer need to fear. We get to live in that kind of hope and faith. And we have been empowered by Jesus to do the ministry that he was sent to do. We are not called to isolate. 
We are empowered to engage the world around us, to live out the rule and reign of God, remembering that I am not in charge, he is in charge. And I get to live out the rule and reign of God in what I would call our spheres of influence, whether you are at home, whether you're at work, whether you're at school, we get to live this out. And in that, Jesus says we find the full life. In that, when we live with him as king, we get to find the full life. But it's the spirit that does that. I would never desire this on my own. It's the spirit that does this inside of me. It's the spirit that lives in us and makes us the temple of God on earth, uniting heaven and earth. So we get to go to our jobs and listen to people who are struggling through life and, like Jesus, stand on the muddy banks of their lives with them and wade into the depths with them. God with them. Because he's been with us. It's the spirit that helps us overcome temptation like Jesus did in the desert when it's dragging us down. And it's the spirit that enables us to be with other people who are suffering with similar temptations. And care for them and walk with them through it because it's what God has done for us. It's the spirit that empowers us to see a sinful man or a sinful woman in our neighborhood or in our school who is struggling And rather than giving them the bitter water of religious legalism and saying, you shouldn't act like that, we give them the life-giving water of the gospel that says, you're loved. Because that is the picture of God that we have seen. It's the spirit that empowers us to be interruptible. Do you remember when Jesus is interrupted by the bleeding woman? He had some place he needed to go, but he heals her, and then he goes and does his mission. It allows us, the spirit, to be interruptible for the umpteenth time by our kids, by our boss, by our mom calling us one more time today. Like, it allows us to be interrupted like Jesus was interrupted because it's his patience that flows through our veins now. It's not something we can muster up. It's what the spirit does inside of us. It's the spirit that empowers us to have perseverance and grace for the long, slow transformation that we want so badly in ourselves that we want so badly in the world around us. Our God is patient and slow. We are empowered by the Spirit to be patient and slow. It's the Spirit that empowers us at work or at home to wash the feet of the people around us, to serve them the way that Jesus served us, even to the point of dying for us. We die to self and serve like Jesus did, not because of something we do, because of the Spirit inside of us. What a picture of God this is, friends. That he would unite heaven and earth inside of you and inside of me and inside of our church to be a family on mission proclaiming the rule and reign of Jesus. That is full life. That is what Jesus promised. That's why he can tell his disciples, as the Father has sent me, I am sending you to go and do likewise. Where will people see God? Where will people see a picture of God in our world today? In Scripture and in us, by the power of the Holy Spirit empowering us to go to be pictures of God in our world. Would you pray with me?